This is uh, Jack and Isa Douglas. Uh, and back in 1970, they were dropped into uh, the jungle in Papua New Guinea. Um, uh, it wasn't uh, an ancient version of I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Uh, but what they were uh, tasked with doing was to win the, the trust uh, of a local tribe uh, of uh, natives uh, called the Pawaiians. Uh, there were two problems with that, with that challenge. Uh, number one, that the Pawaiians uh, spoke a language that n- had never be ri- been written down. And so their first challenge was to communicate uh, with this local tribe. Uh, and for any of us who have attempted to learn a language before, when you've, when you've got a textbook with the grammar and the vocabulary all written down, imagine learning a language with none of those helps, just pointing waiting for the sound that comes back and trying to write that sound down. Uh, But that's what they managed to do. It took incredible determination, incredible patience, incredible skill. Uh, But that's what they did. They they learned the language uh, and they wrote it down. The second challenge was that not only had this tribe of Powaians in Papua New Guinea never had their language written down before, but they'd never seen a white person before. Um, and there was a history of head hunting. So this was a very dangerous uh, endeavor that they took on. So why would uh, Jack uh, and uh, Isa take that challenge on? Well, they took that challenge on because they passionately wanted that remote tribe of Indians who they'd never met before uh, to have the Bible in their own language. They were absolutely persuaded that what is in this book is nothing less than the very word of God. And so to achieve that, they had to go there. To achieve that, they had to learn the language. They had to invent a way of writing it down. They then had to teach the people to read that language so that they would have access to God's word in their heart tongue. It took them 37 years. They sacrificed effectively their whole working lives, sacrificed their creature comforts, sacrificed their safety, uh, sacrificed any chance of career advancement. Clearly very gifted. They probably would have done well in some other career. Um, But what drove them was that passion to have God's word in the language of this people so that they could come to know him. Uh, now I know as I say all of that to uh, uh, folks in this room at this time of day in this church family that there's a lot of you that share that very same conviction that what you have in your hand the Bible is nothing less than the word of God I know that Um, I recognize that there's lots of people in this room would say that it is the, the book on which we should base our entire lives It should guide our decision-making. It should shape our plans and priorities. And yet, and yet, as I've kind of read around this subject and read some of the recent surveys that have been done uh, among evangelical Christians, um, I reckon if I did a survey, Eddie already hinted at it this morning, if I did a survey and asked all of you anonymously to say, 
with one question, do you read the Bible every day for at least 15 or 20 minutes? I reckon that would be, the number I would get back would be a minority of the people sitting in this room. I reckon if I asked then a follow-up question to say how many of you, in all honesty, have read this book cover to cover, I reckon the number would be even smaller. Uh, We are increasingly a generation who pay lip service to the Bible. Yeah, we we believe the Bible. It's nice to have a a TED talk on the Bible every Sunday. Uh, I'm glad that you like the Bible, Lee, and you give me a bit of the Bible. We maybe even read a bit of a devotion on the Bible. We read this one sentence and then maybe a page of somebody's thoughts about the Bible. But we are increasingly a generation that don't read the Bible. We don't read it, at least not systematically, at least not in any disciplined, planned way. And look, there are all sorts of reasons for that, all sorts of good reasons for that. Uh, first reason is that the Bible is complex. It is, it is, this, we are, this is not easy young adult fiction. This is not The Hunger Games or, or Harry Potter. That's just an easy page turner. This is hard, long, dense, complicated, difficult in places. Um, it also... Uh, I, in, my, in my Bible in a year plan, I've just started the book of Numbers, right? Pages and pages of lists of names, rep, rep, you know, it's very repetitive and tedious and boring. And what, why, why am I reading this? Why is this relevant to me in any way? The Bible's complex. The Bible is culturally alien. When we step into the Bible and start to read it, we step into a whole different world. We are reading of a culture that is very far away, uh, written over a thousand years, but at least two millennia ago. And so there's all sorts of bizarre details. And so when you read the love story of Ruth, for example, what's that sandal swapping thing all about? And when you read the laws, like why do they seem so obsessed with mildew and what's wrong with shellfish again? Um, what's, what's this all about? What's going on? Uh, the Bible is complex. It is alien to us. And then to make matters even worse, it's incredibly controversial. It clashes in all sorts of ways with our culture. There's all sorts of deeply unsettling stories. So when we read of the people of Israel coming to the land of Cana for the first time, and then what seems to be committing divinely sanctioned ethnic cleansing, that's a problem. That's a problem. Uh, We read all sorts of dramatic miracles. The dividing uh, of the Red Sea. Really? Really? Is that possible? Um, We then read all sorts of bizarre details. Like you just get to page three, just page three of the Bible. We've got a talking snake, right? That's like, really? We meant to believe that? And then there's all sorts of unpopular teaching. Sex is for marriage. Marriage is for a man and a woman. And marriage is for life. That's a problem in our culture to say stuff like that. And so for all sorts of reasons, there's a growing group of especially young, educated Christians who are discovering the Bible for the first time and beginning to read it. 
and getting deeply troubled by what they by what they are discovering that is inside this book. There's an increasing number of people who are thinking, well, look, I really like Jesus, and I think we should stick with him, but I think the Bible is a bit more of a liability than an asset. And I think, is it possible maybe to stick with Jesus and ditch the Bible? Maybe that's the way to go. And so the question then is, why should you bother reading the Bible? Why should you bother? Why should you stick with the Bible? And look, there's all sorts of reasons I could give, and I don't have time to go into all of those, but here is the big reason that I'm going to try to defend this morning. The big reason you should stick with the Bible, the reason you should study it, the reason you should obey it and believe it, is fundamentally because we are followers of Jesus. We're followers of Jesus. And if you know anything at all about Jesus... You will know that, to put it mildly, he was obsessed with the Bible. He was obsessed with the Bible. Uh, he read it. He quoted it. Uh, he would teach it. He would preach it. Um, he would memorize it. He would trust it. He would come under its authority. Uh, he would pray it. And he would live it. Uh, To spell out the implications of that, here is a quote I found really helpful from uh, a Bible teacher, Andrew Wilson. Our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him. I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered and my answers remain unpopular. Why should we believe the Bible? Why should we trust the Bible? Why should we read the Bible? Because fundamentally we are followers of Jesus We're followers of Jesus. It's what Jesus did. And if we want to be disciples or followers of Jesus, then we must do the same. And so what I want to do this morning, very briefly, uh, in trying to answer this question, why read the Bible, is to give you a very brief glimpse into Jesus' attitude and relationship with the Bible. Look, there's loads that I could say. We've only time to dip into three passages very briefly. One in a little bit of detail and then just a touch on two others. But what I want to do is I want to try to summarize Jesus' attitude to the Bible with one acronym. This acronym, STAND. Stand, which is why I got you to stand while reading the Bible this morning. Jesus' attitude to the Bible, how did he view it? He viewed it as a story. It's fundamentally a story um, of which he was the climax. He viewed it as absolutely trustworthy and true. He viewed it as authoritative. He viewed it as all that we need. And he viewed it as having dual authorship, both human and divine. Okay, so let me look at a couple of uh, passages that spell some of those things out. In the first passage, if you've closed your Bible, turn back to Matthew 5, where Jesus, in this famous Sermon on the Mount, which is one of five collections of Jesus' essential teachings uh, in the book of Matthew, we see this first idea in verse 17, that the Bible, according to Jesus, was a story which reached its climax in him. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, I have, which is shorthand for the whole of what we call the Old Testament. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And what does Jesus mean? Well, according to Jesus, the Bible is not uh, an encyclopedia of truth. It's not this reference work that we dip into every so often and check out the, the entry on God or Jesus or life after death or forgiveness. Uh, the Bible is not a self-help book, fundamentally, that's just a catalog of human problems and God's answers to those problems. No, fundamentally, the Bible is a story. It's a story. It's made up of all these different books, 66 different books written, written over a thousand years of all these different types of literature. We'll get into all that next week. Um, poetry and prophecy and narrative and so on. But they all connect together. They all join together to tell one unified story. Uh, a story where we are introduced to the hero at the very beginning. And the hero is God himself. And God set up the world We've messed up the world, uh, our first parents, by choosing to rebel against him, choosing to reject God as king and to be king and rulers of our own lives, and we all repeat their decision every day. Uh, but wonderfully, this story is this, the, the record of how God has hatched a rescue plan, uh, a plan where he's going to reconcile us to himself. He's going to save us from the consequences of our foolishness and our disobedience and our self-deception and to bring us back into a new creation uh, where there's no more suffering or pain or agony or death ever again. And Jesus is saying that the whole story, the whole story hinges on him. It's a shocking claim when you stop and think about it that God's whole plan for history it all hinges on me. I am the lead actor. I am the headline act. It's all been building up and pointing forward uh, to me. Uh, again, uh, that is a shocking claim that this whole multi-volume work with all the, the, the fundamental big story and all the laws and, and poetry and songs and prophecy that all fit in underneath that umbrella, all of it, all of it points forward to him. This verb that uh, Matthew uses here, the verb fulfill, um, pleru in Greek, is, is, he uses it 16 times in the book. It's one of his favorite verbs. Uh, and uh, 12 of those 16 times, it's used to say that what was prophesied in the Old Testament, da da, it's finally here, it's finally come. Uh, he uses it a couple of other occasions to refer to something coming to completion or being filled up fully. Um, fulfill really c captures the idea of what was anticipated in the past and was always intended has finally come. Let me give you two silly examples. But, uh, so in the sense, uh, a marriage, we celebrated a marriage here yesterday, a wedding. A wedding is the fulfillment of an engagement. Get the idea? The engagement always pointed forward to what was to come. The maiden voyage of a new ship is the fulfillment of all the design and the construction work that's gone on before. It's all been building up to this point. 
And so fulfill uh, or fulfilling in Matthew is about achieving, finally achieving what was always intended. And Jesus is saying, just as an engagement ring points forward to a wedding, uh, just as a maiden voyage of a ship is the fulfillment of the design and construction work, I am the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. It's all been pointing forward. Every uh, pattern, every prediction, every promise, every prophecy, every precept or law, it's all been pointing forward to me. I am the hero of this story. And so we are meant to read the Bible like that. We are meant to read the Bible as fundamentally a story. And when we look at any one part of it, we should always ask the question, how does this point us forward to Jesus? The Bible is a story which reaches its climax in his life, teaching, death, uh, resurrection, and ascension. Second principle, according to Jesus, for how we should view the Bible, how he viewed the Bible, is T. It is trustworthy. It is trustworthy. So look at verse 18. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, and not one iota. Iota is the, 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 a Greek letter, and it literally is the smallest Greek letter. Not one stroke of a pen. That's a word that refers to a little accent above. It's not even, it's smaller than a dot of an I in English. And it's not even part of the letter. It's just part of the, the way you pronounce a mark to show you how you pronounce the letter. Not one stroke of a pen will pass away until all that the, the, the Bible has been talking about has been fully accomplished. There's quite simply no higher view of the Bible than that. There is no part of the Bible that is irrelevant. There is no part of the Bible that should be ignored. There's no part of the Bible that should be rejected. Any argument or suggestion that the Bible is somehow now desperately needing to be updated, desperately needing to be revised, part or parts of it that need to be rejected, any argument that, that is given to you that makes those conclusions, Jesus is saying, is wrong, is wrong. The Bible, right down to the very letter, is God's word and reliable and true when it is rightly interpreted and correctly applied. Jesus never apologized for the scriptures. He never corrected or changed the Bible. But he did correct uh, people's misreading of the Bible because it's very, very possible for us to be wrong when we come to the Bible to make mistakes, to uh, make um, wrong interpretations, to come to it with wrong assumptions. And Jesus was very clear. There's nothing wrong with the Bible, right down to the single letters that God originally inspired are true and trustworthy. But it is possible for us to get it wrong. Uh, I think Jesus is showing us an alternative way to approach the Bible than what is increasingly popular, as I said, among young, educated Christians. Jesus is saying that the problem is not with the Bible. Um, the problem uh, is with us. 
So when you come to the Bible and you come to an unsettling story or you come to a factual difficulty or you come uh, to an apparent contradiction, your first step should not be to say, the Bible's got that wrong. God didn't really say that. Our first step should be to ask, is there something I'm missing? Is there an assumption I have that's wrong? Am I interpreting this correctly? Maybe the problem is with me. Maybe the problem is with me. Jesus is saying, number one, S, the Bible is a story that reaches its climax to him. Second, the Bible, T, is completely trustworthy. Third, A, The Bible is authoritative, verse 19. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, This little phrase, uh, set aside, can be translated to, to break or to ignore or to relax some of the commandments uh, in the Bible. So according to Jesus, if you are to be one of his followers, if you're to be one of his followers, then what is required of you, according to Jesus, is that you will submit to the authority and the teaching of the Bible. Um, That is his expectation here of all of us. Uh, In fact, your very status in the kingdom of heaven depends on that attitude towards the Bible. We'll come to why that's important in a a second. But uh, I just want us to think a little bit this morning, just very briefly, about what he means by these commands. I tell you the truth, uh, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter. Sorry, verse 19, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom. What, what, What are these commands that Jesus is referring to. And you have one of two options, really, I think. One, that these commands are the commands looking back that were in the Old Testament, uh, in the Torah and so on, 613 laws there in the, in the Old Testament. Are these the commands that are still binding on the people of Jesus today? Or are these commands... When Jesus uses that phrase, is he speaking, looking forward to the commands that he's about to give in the rest of the chapter? So you've heard it said, but I say to you, there have been sort of common misunderstandings of the Bible that Jesus is further clarifying and and filling out in detail with regards to, as you've just looked down at the headings in your Bible, with regards to anger and murder, with regards to lust and adultery, with regards to uh, making oaths and promises, with regards to love for your enemies. Jesus is filling out and giving additional commands. He is the king who has gathered his people around him and has given commands and teaching to them. Well, again, I can't be sure, but I think, I think Jesus is referring to the commands that he's about to give. Uh, And I think that has implications for us. So I don't think Jesus is um, saying that you should obey all 613 of the commands in the Torah. That, by the way, you're all breaking even right this moment. 
if you're wearing clothes of mixed fabric, if you've eaten any type of shellfish in the last week, if you haven't uh, got someone to formally inspect your house, if you've spotted a bit of mildew, you get the idea. I don't think Jesus is, is saying that those commands are binding on us today. I think what he's saying is any command that is restated in the New Testament, which we, I think Paul refers to as the law of Christ, is binding on believers. We come under that authority. And we should pursue that and obedience to him and the teaching of the New Testament with rigor and determination and passion to try and apply God's word accurately to our lives. And I think there's a few hints why we should do that. I think Jesus is looking forward to his own teaching and the teaching of the New Testament because when he talks about commandments, what has he been talking about beforehand? Well, he's been talking not just about the Torah and the Ten Commandments. He's been talking about the Law and the Prophets. He's not just been talking about commands. He's been talking about the whole Old Testament. Um, the narrative, the poetry, the wisdom. Uh, In this uh, Sermon on the Mount, the focus is on what Jesus is saying, not on what the Old Testament has been saying. Uh, And when you get to the end of the book, uh, I think the the words will appear on the screen behind me. Uh, In Matthew chapter 28, uh, we read uh, these words which Where Jesus says this, in conclusion to the book, all authority, these are Jesus' parting words to his followers, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them, that's us, to obey everything I have commanded you. That's then expanded and clarified for us in the New Testament. Jesus is calling us to submit to his commandments which have been preserved for us in the writings of the New Testament. And Jesus is um, showing us that actually if we are to follow him, if we are to be obedient to him, we are to recognize that he is the one who has authority over our lives. He is the one who has authority over our lives. The, new, the Old Testament predicted, anticipated, looked forward to the coming of a new king uh, who would gather around him a new people and who would give them a new heart. People who were willing to obey. The Old Testament looked forward to one day a society being formed where there would be no more anger, no more lust, no more dishonesty. No more greed or envy or pride. And Jesus has introduced that kingdom. And one day it will be a fully fledged reality. Um, And in the meantime, we are called to recognize his authority. And this is a a key point I want you to hold on to. Let me try to fill it out for you. Jesus' authority is mediated through the Bible, through the scriptures. That sounds like a weird idea. Um, Notice what Jesus says in the verse behind me. Jesus doesn't say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to the Bible. No, he says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. But you're to obey my commands and my teaching. 
preserved in the Bible. You see, authority always, almost always comes mediated through words and writing. That's the way it works. That's the way it always works. And so if your boss sends you an email and tells you to do this, that, and the other, you can't just say, yeah, but that was just an email. can ignore that. Uh, he didn't tell me directly. It was just an email I got. No, we, you recognize that you need to obey the, the, the command in the email because it was your boss who sent it. Likewise, if your spouse tells you to be sure on your way home from work, bring some milk home, and you get a little, little post-it note in, in your diary to remind you of that just before you go home, you, you'd be foolish to say, ah, that's just a post-it note. I can ignore that. You know, we all recognize that, that you need to obey that because of who it's from. You can't just say when you see a speed limit, a sign, oh, that's just a sign, it doesn't matter. No, because that sign carries with it the authority of the government who set it up. All authority comes mediated through words and text. And the same is true for the Lord Jesus. We submit ourselves to his authority when we obey the words of Scripture. We cannot ever separate those two. Uh, and so if we refuse to obey, or so when we obey the Bible first, when we obey the Bible, we are expressing our faith, our trust and obedience to the Lord Jesus. But when we ignore the Bible, uh, shrug off its commands, reject uh, the, the, the stipulations and rules that are preserved there, we are expressing our lack of trust our disobedience and faithlessness to the Lord Jesus personally. I think uh, there's a guy called uh, Ray Lubach, who's a professor of uh, New Testament uh, in America, who's put it very well like this. He said, for believers to follow Jesus implies, among other things, adopting the same attitude towards God's word as Jesus had. Simply put, we cannot truthfully say that we are followers of Jesus if we neglect or refuse to obey what the Bible tells us. The Bible carries with it Jesus' authority when rightly understood and rightly applied to us. Fourth, we need to recognize the Bible is all we need in, all we need Jesus told a lot of parables that actually when you, get, when you really wrestle with them are a bit uncomfortable and unsettling. Perhaps one of the most uncomfortable parables that he ever told was uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We don't have time to read it all now, but uh, at first glance it just seems to be a story of role reversal. So you've got this, this rich man uh, and this poor man. And when they die, their rules seem to be reversed uh, the poor man is the man who has great privilege um, sharing in the banquet with Abraham, uh, whereas the rich man or the formerly rich man ends up in torment. But the parable ends with a really weird and uncomfortable conversation. I don't know if you remember it. The words will appear on the screen behind me, where the, the formerly rich man pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus back to his family home to warn his brothers 
so that they don't end up where he is in torment. And Abraham says, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because they have everything they need. Where? In the law and the prophets, in the Bible. They have everything they need. You don't need anything more. In fact, if you had more, that wouldn't do you any good. It's a bit like a pantomime here, you know. If you send uh, the, um, uh, Lazarus and he rises from the dead and tells them the truth about heaven and hell, then they'd believe. And Abraham says, oh no, they wouldn't. I, again, even just a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a phone-in and uh, an atheist was talking on the phone-in and said, you know, the only thing that would convince him that there is a God is if God showed up and did a personal miracle just for him. Then I'd believe. At which point I want to shout like the pantomime at the radio, oh no you wouldn't. Oh no you wouldn't. You'd explain that away too. But the truth is, if you read the Bible, pay attention to it, open yourself up to it, it does have the power to convince you of the truth of who God is, that he's really there, the truth of his rescue plan and his love for you and his offer of forgiveness to you. It's all you need. Just open it up and read it. And the same, I think this is a message we as Christians need to hear as well. It's all you, this is all you need. This is all you need. To be convinced of God's love for you personally, you do not need health and wealth. You do not need miracles and visions. You have everything you need to convince you of the truth of who God is and his passionate love for you that he demonstrated in the Lord Jesus supremely right here in the pages of scripture. You've all you need. Don't need anything more. What's Jesus' attitude to the Bible? It's a story which he is the climax of. It is absolutely trustworthy. It's authoritative. And we are to submit to it. It's all you need. And lastly, and very briefly, and we'll come into this in more detail next week if you come back, uh, the Bible uh, has dual authorship. Okay, so I'm really struggling to get the D to work, but you give, give me a moment. Uh, it has dual authorship, human and divine. Um, flip over to Mark chapter 12, right at the end of the, the chapter. Mark chapter 12. Um, there are many people today, um, Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 35 uh, to 40, I think the words will appear on the screen behind me. Yes, they will. Um, many people have made a career by asking tough questions. You know, Jeremy Paxman and uh, John Humphreys and Kathy Newman and all those uh, famous journalists. They've made a career of asking tough questions, taking powerful and influential people and just asking them really, really hard questions uh, and sometimes uh, cornering them uh, and reducing them to silence. And uh, we all enjoy we all enjoy that. Um, but I want to suggest that there was no one who asked tougher questions than Jesus himself. So in Mark chapter 12, uh, opposition has been mounting against Jesus from the clergy of the day. And they've been asking him all these tough questions to try to trap him. Uh, questions about theology, questions about politics. Uh, and they're trying to corner him. 
Uh, but then Jesus now turned at the very end. He's, and, and if you get a chance to read Mark 12, his answers are brilliant, brilliant answers. Uh, he is not to be cornered. He's not to be trapped and tripped up. But then now at the end of the chapter, he turns the table on them and asks them a really tough question. Who do you think the Messiah is? And they know their Bible really well. It's easy. He's the son of David. He's the son of David. Um, and then Jesus asks a follow-up question. Um, he quotes um, Psalm 110. And he said, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord. How then can he be David's son? Now, that, that, that question doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But in uh, uh, an ancient Near Eastern culture, you always viewed your elders with absolute honor and respect. Your elders and your forefathers and your ancestors before you, you viewed them with absolute respect, with great honor, because they're the ones who gave you life. But now in this quote, we have the greatest king that Israel ever had referring to his son, in some way, as greater than him. That David calls him Lord. What's going on? Jesus asked the question, and they have no answer. They don't understand how that could be possible. Of course, we living this side of the, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus know exactly how that's possible. But, but what I want you to see is how Jesus quotes the Old Testament. Notice how he quotes it. David said, through the Holy Spirit. Who wrote Psalm 110 then? Well, the answer is David and the Holy Spirit. Uh, together, they wrote the Old Testament. So we're not meant to understand, and we'll, again, we'll come back to this in a bit more detail next week. We're not meant to understand that the Old Testament is human invention. Human beings just thought it up, and it's the record of human ideas about God. That's not what the Old Testament is. It's not human invention, but neither is it mere dictation. Um, you know, that God kind of woke Isaiah up in the middle of the night, tapped him on the shoulder and said, Isaiah, is that, yes, yes, Lord. Um, in the year that King Uzziah reigned, in the year King Uzziah reigned, I saw the Lord, I, I saw the Lord. You know, it's not mere dictation. No, there is some sort of collaboration going on that the Holy Spirit so influenced human writers and editors that the books they wrote were precisely the ones God intended us to have. That God used human personality and skill um, and creativity and their experience and their education. He used the whole package and influenced them in such a way that they wrote down precisely what God wanted them to write down. Again, we'll look at that in more detail uh, next time. Jesus then understood the Bible to be something that he would stand up for. Something he would stand for. He viewed it as a story of which he was the climax. He viewed it as absolutely trustworthy. Uh, it's all true. It's all about him. It's all important. It's all you need. And it's all ultimately God's word even though it's written by a variety of human writers. 
And so Jesus committed his mind to studying it. Uh, He committed his will uh, to uh, teaching it. And he humbled his heart to obey it. And the challenge for each and every one of us is if we're followers of Jesus, we are to do exactly the same. Let me pray before the band come up again.